You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Do you remember what you were taught about Indigenous history when you were at school? Chances are you learnt about Terra Nullius, the European definition of a land uninhabited. We know that this was untrue and that Australia was occupied by one of the oldest civilizations known to man. But details of what Indigenous culture looked like at the time are few and far between. Bruce Pascoe, author of Dark Emu, A True History, has released a book for children called Young Dark Emu, offering a real insight into Indigenous history through the eyes of colonists at the time. Bruce joins us on the line now. Hi, Bruce. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? Good, thank you. What did you learn about Indigenous history when you were at school? Uh, it was pretty intensive. We coloured in a boomerang. Yeah. That was it. That was it. <laughs> that was it. When you said that, I thought, really? <laughs> <laughs> um, and did it, at the time, um, did you find it at all interesting? Well, I, I, just, I was just disturbed by the whole thing because um, it just never rang true to me. Um, but, you know, I was a meek student, I suppose. I just accepted what everyone said. You know, I just presumed that they would know. And um, that's that's why I'm, you know, even as a university student, you know, I did the same. Um, and I'm kind of a bit disgusted with myself. It was actually, um, you know, the elders who sharpened me up on the, on that score. And who made me really start to look. It wasn't my teachers. So when you decided to write Black Emu, how did you go about the research? Well, I, I was, I'd done a, a, in a reasonable amount of research and I'd been reading a book called um, The Origins of a, uh, Agriculture in Australia by Rupert Gerritsen. Um, but I realised that when... I was getting such negative feedback from uh, academics in Canberra that I would have to approach it in a different way. So the, the things that they revered were the explorer's journals. So I thought, if, if I'm going to do this um, and prosecute it properly, I'm going to have to use the explorer's journal. So I started reading explorer's journals, early pioneer contact histories and things like that and what I, what amazed me was there was so much material in them um, and I, it also made me wonder how we had got into the situation we were in when so many people had read Explorer's Journals but had read them with such a different perspective um, hadn't read them uh, looking for Aboriginal excellence uh, had been looking for the exact opposite. And but some of the um, writings you found were sounded really um, complementary of what they saw in terms of yeah. Indigenous culture. They were. But the people who read them afterwards edited those things in their own minds, completely leaving them out. What was it like for you to go back and read those original sources Describing. Oh, it was a revelation. It it just changed my, you know, 
I, I was just so angry that with myself uh, that I'd never questioned what I'd been taught, even though it, it sounded suspicious to me. Um, so when I read the Explorer's Journals, I just realised that the whole country had been sold a pup, not just me. How, does it, how did it change your view of history, knowing the details that were written in those diaries? How does it change what, sorry? Your view of history. So you were taught oh, about... Oh, it's make- just fundamental because it, what it shows, and um, we, we're turning up new evidence all the time, even as of this morning, but um, it just shows that there was a highly sophisticated and organised um, culture here. It's incredibly old older than anything else on Earth. You know, we're, we're talking 120,000 years minimum now, whereas when I went to school, first went to school, it was 5,000 years. When I left school, it was 40,000 years. And, you know, in the last 18 months alone, it's gone from 60,000 years to 120,000 years, you know, more than double in 18 months. And, um, you know, we're not finished yet. So... This is an incredible culture. It was conducted without war. The only culture on earth not to use war as an underlying principle of control. Um, and, you know, you, you say that quickly and people go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's good, yeah, without understanding what it means. You know, if a culture deliberately decided against land war, that changes world history. And that's why this culture is really important for the world to know about and to respect because the philosophical underpinning is so profound. And as a researcher and a writer, as an author of a book, how is it for you to, I mean, to actually try and understand this history when it's written through the eyes of other people? So it's still an observation given that so much of Indigenous history and culture was destroyed through colonisation, does it make it... I mean, it seems like it would be really challenging to get a a full picture of everything. Yeah, it is. Um, But uh, we don't talk about loss in the um, Aboriginal community. You know, obviously some people do, but I don't. And most of the people I... Uh, live with and work with don't you know we talk about our triumphs you know what we gain what we reclaim what we find out that's what we talk about we're not talking we're not going to talk in negatives we can't afford to Australia can't afford to we have to talk in in positive terms and you know we can't if stuff has been lost we're not going to reclaim it by throwing up our hands Um, if we want to advance then we have to be positive we have to be determined that our young people will have a better life than we've had and um, a more open understanding of history Um, but just to throw down your hands and say oh too late everything's lost that just gives in and we can't afford to give in with that in mind the things that you uncovered about the way the First Nations people cared for the land, both in terms of agriculture and managing mm-hmm. the resources. Can you see any of that knowledge being used in the future? Can you see... Yeah, it's already being used. Um, 
you know, people are turning to our crops because they they know about nutrition and they know about soil health um, and they know about environmental damage and they know about climate change and how, you know, in the future we'll have less water in the country than we've got now. Um, so they know that our plants, you know, whoopee-doo, they're Australian. Who would have thought? <laughs> and so they're adapted to Australian conditions. So, you know, they only need the amount of water and fertility that Australia can provide. The driest and oldest, most eroded, uh, least fertile country on earth. Um, and these plants are adapted to us. You know, these are the plants that want to grow here. And, you know, people are understanding that now. What I hope, though, is they just remember um, who domesticated these plants, who did all the science, who did all the labour, who did all the care. Um, because it's one thing to discover a bush tomato, and it's another thing to make sure that when that bush tomato is sold, an Aboriginal person benefits, because that hasn't happened in the past. Celebrity chefs and uh, people like that have discovered the bush tomato, lemon myrtle, stuff like that. But Aboriginal people haven't, haven't uh, been advantaged by that. So we have to make sure that we change our tune, that uh, we, we are determined to enjoy these foods, but we are absolutely determined that Aboriginal people will benefit from them. You've said that people of your generation still find it difficult to accept that this is what Australia looked like at the time of colonisation. Do you hope that books like Young Dark Emu will make Australia more accepting of history? I, I think that's I think that's what's going to happen. Um, uh, dark Emu is going Young Dark Emu is going very well. Uh, it's been accepted by teachers and school children and parents. So there's going to be a generation that never question the fact of Aboriginal culture, Aboriginal excellence, Aboriginal agriculture, these things, because they will accept them. And the book is written in a way, it's not didactic. Um, students are invited to challenge it at every step. So that we, I don't want people just saying, oh, yeah, it's in the book, so it must be right, because that's what got us into trouble in the first place. That's why there's such an extensive bibliography, so that kids can go, well, is that right? You know, how can I find out? And there's the bibliography. I'm going to read Sturt's journal. You know, that, that would be really good education. And I'd love them to read Sturt's journal because it'll embed in them, you know, respect for Aboriginal culture when they do. At what age do you think it's appropriate to start talking to children about what really happened in this country. I mean, I'm an adult um, and while the information about agriculture and care for the land is empowering and amazing, the other darker side of our history is horrifying and terribly sad. Is there a way to introduce it um, to children that won't make them frightened of learning more? Because you can't really teach one thing without the other, can you? We underestimate um what kids are capable of thinking. And we always underestimate their thought. And currently we, you know, we think that, you know, we shouldn't be talking to kids about, this is designed for 7 to 12 year olds. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't be talking to those kids about wars and massacres. Well, why do we watch, let them watch television? 
if we're so scared about what a child's reaction is going to be to information about a massacre, how, do, how come we let them watch them on television? How come we let them watch Star Wars um, or any of those gruesome, bloody action shows that kids watch freely? Um, you know, where whole populations are laid waste. You know, computer games where, you know, you've got a thing that kills people. You know, even bloody Pac-Man. Oh, there we go. We've just eaten that one. We've eaten this one. <laughs> it's the same thing. You know, it's about getting rid of things. And, you know, if you're going to do that, you've got to teach about massacre as well. And, you know, you don't just, you don't make that the only thing that you teach about Australian history because there's a, a future as well. And so you talk about, at the same time you're talking about massacre, you're talking about Aboriginal governance and you're talking about a, a civilisation that made land war anathema in their society, the only civilization on earth to do so. You know, is this the golden age, I sometimes ask, uh, for the human race, where we, we lived uh, socially, but we eschewed land war? I think we've got to talk to kids about this. I do. I talk to eight-year-olds. They're totally logical. They're totally fair. And we always have a great discussion. And no one goes, goes home depressed. That's such a great place to end the interview. Bruce, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Good on you. Thanks very much. Bruce Pascoe, author of Dark Emu, A Truer History, and we'll put links to where you can get a copy in the notes of this episode. Morning sickness. There's nothing like it. There are just some women who are just prone to it, and that's probably something to do with the mix of genes in the baby. Um, and the way that your body's responding to this foreign material. That's obstetrician David Addenbrook. And while we don't know why women get morning sickness, there are some things you can do to help keep it under control. David's giving us his thoughts on morning sickness on the next episode of Feed, Play, Love. This podcast is produced by Debbie Ning, and I'm your host, Siobhan Hunt. Hold up. 